the Flyover Footy. We are a St. Louis soccer podcast, and you might be joining us on the Big 550 KTRS. Welcome, everyone. We have a wonderful show in store for you today, and we're gonna get we're gonna get a little more specific than usual. Matt, do you want to say why that is? There's a show people can look for, an extra show this week that people could look for on our on our podcast stream. Yeah, I never I never would have thought we'd be able to get more specific than we already do. <laughs> but if there's something that we've been missing about covering the previews, I think we're going to get to it here. This is going to be the most comprehensive preview show that we've had because we debuted a new show this week on our Flyover Footy podcast feed called Flyover Fallout, where we recap the previous week's matchup. Usually comes out right now, it's coming out around Tuesday morning. And it's a full deep dive around, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes or so. Trying to try to cut it down a little bit, but it's it, this week it was Santiago and myself recapping Seattle, and we went deep in that to allow us more time to go deep against uh, our matchup for Cincinnati tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from Saturday to the day we record this to the day that it broadcasts on KTRS, for that matter, is a long way to go. So this is a much better situation, I think. We are going to touch a little bit on the Seattle Sounders game. Should we jump right into that now? Yeah, let's do it. And we so we covered the the details. We covered the goals. I think the important thing is that there's a lot to take away from that match. Uh, the first thing, obviously, is the new formation that we rolled out. It was the really the third big formation change that we've seen. So we ran three center backs, five man back line. It let it let us see what uh, Johnny Nelson and Jake Nerwinski look like in more wing back roles in our system. It did not have very much of an offensive threat component to it. We did not have very many shots on goal. We didn't have many shots in general, and we couldn't put a lot of pressure on the ball. So the big takeaway I had from a formation perspective from Seattle is if we're going to run a three-man back line for center backs, if we're going to have wing true wing backs, there needs to be more, I want to say, training on that formation. That We hmm. heard some quotes from the players afterwards that really indicated, especially from Berkey, that there was a lot of uh, mental, there was a mental aspect to that formation because it's not something that they spent a lot of time with. And obviously in the six games prior, they ran a four man back line. Everybody was used to doing something different. So Santiago and I touched on, there's a little bit of a mental aspect to thinking about what they needed to do rather than it being muscle memory. So I'm looking forward to a, a reversion back to a four man back line uh, from what we did against Seattle and couple that we just continued our goalless streak so we're going into the Cincinnati game not just having lost two matches but having lost two matches and scored zero goals in those yeah and you know I want to say that I liked that they tried this and I understand why they tried this I think um, you know the first half was a little rocky but you know from the start of the second half until that first goal and even that first goal was a banger and I don't even know if we should include that in in messing up but the the formation was working well. We were pressing high. We were forcing them to lump it long to Jordan Morrison behind, and it was just clogged. I mean, he had nowhere to go. There were three big guys waiting for him right there. So we saw that happen a few times in the second half, and I really liked it. it we got to see what Bradley Carnell was going for and the and the the, train, the technical staff was all going for. Uh, but then the wheels fell off a little bit at the end, didn't they? Yeah, and the formation did its job for 65 minutes. And and that's one thing that I think is we're going to touch on some quotes related to how they used what happened against Seattle to what, what they're going to do against Cincinnati. And that's really keep it within ourselves. Play our style of game. Do what we do best as opposed to leverage the entire game plan on we, what we know the opponent can do and can bring to the table. Seattle is probably the best overall team in, as far as depth that we'll face. 
they you could you saw with the fact they had a guy like Raul Ruiz Diaz who they were able to bring in as a 60 first minute sub completely changed the game. And when you have that kind of depth, it makes sense to game plan for the opposition, but we saw the the negative aspect to it there in the second half whereas the first half was shut them down. It was it was put them on lockdown and and we'll deal with it. We'll try to produce what we can. But once the once the Atencio goal happened, the wheels did fall off. We tried to keep the same formation, but go on the attack. We created way too much space. People were out of position compared to what they needed to be in that formation. And and it really led to a lot of uh, a few mental mistakes, I think, in the box as we were defending all things that it goes back to the formation to me that if you if you run a style that you are best at that you know is proven success and i could take the berkey quotes from post match but you can also listen to what we said on flavor fallout you got to get back to what you are you are familiar with committed to and have proven success with and that's what i think we're really going to see some of these quotes from carnell and joaquini speak to going into cincinnati about what the differences were early in the week compared to how they're feeling later in the week getting back to kind of back to the basics to a sense. Carnell was very, he didn't want to say back to the basics. It was more like back to what they're doing best. Yeah. And just right before I want to get to those quotes, but just before you do that is I think we're kind of automatically, at least I have been automatically thinking about defensively um, how that five in the back or three in the back might've been problematic, but offensively we have, we're not able to get going in this game terribly well. There we there were chances I wouldn't say we looked bad per se, but, um, you know, playing away at Seattle, all of that included, um, and how good Seattle's been defensively this season. Um, we, you know, we didn't get that much XG out of this one and the XG felt right on top of that to the eye test as well offensively. So, you know, we're not just talking about, yes, they were able to score three goals and look good on top of that. There could have been one or two more perhaps, but, um, you know, offensively, we weren't able to generate that much either. And it's another game where we have to look to the adjustments made in the second half, where their one of their assistant coaches, hmm. Freddie Juarez, made a, a very good tactical adjustment. Whatever the whatever he saw worked to a T for Seattle. We weren't able to make those same adjustments, and so it's another story of in the second half, seeing what's not working as far as producing chances, not even goals, but really quality chances, and being able to identify something that you can take advantage of in the opposition, change up your formation, your your whatever you're having the players do on the field. And we haven't, we haven't seen that consistently. We haven't needed to see it every game because we've been on the, the, the front foot for most of, a, of these games, but when we're not, it's these adjustments in the second half. And that's where that's another aspect that Seattle bit us in. And it will be imperative, especially at home that we're able to make any necessary second half adjustments. Agree. And I want to talk kind of you're leading right into some things I want to talk about um, when we start talking about Cincinnati. But maybe we can read these quotes still kind of talking about the Seattle game and, and move on to that Cincinnati game. Yeah. So the the quotes from Bradley Carnell today kind of speak to how are you bouncing back after those two losses? Kind of what's the mindset going from winning five to losing two, being shut out in two. And he's really saying there's no crisis. There's no problems. Nothing's broken. You just have to adjust and fine tune a few things. You have to show the edge that we showed in the first five games and go back to, quote, prove the world wrong mentality. So that the way that they were 
always the underdogs in those first few matches, the way that they needed to prove themselves, they're kind of back in that scenario where they have to prove that they can stop a skid. They can, they can handle one of the best teams in the league. Mm-hmm. They've had two opportunities so far, and so far it seems like we're not quite at that tier. No, you can say we're mid, you can say we're near upper mid, however. But Carnell says he sees a couple different versions of FC Cincinnati, but he brings it back to the focus on themselves and what they can do. So noting some of these things that Cincinnati has and that we're going to get to, he's really spending a lot of the, the quotes in the press conference this week talking about getting back within themselves and identifying how they can play their best game while identifying some weaknesses that FC Cincinnati might have, whether it be personnel-related weaknesses or formation-related weaknesses to their back three that we could take advantage of. And then Nico Joachini really kind of, if, you, if you're able to watch the press conference on the City app or their website, please do it and get to the Nico Joachini part because the way that his face kind of changes from when he's asked about how training is going this week after Seattle, talking about how Tuesday was tough, but ever since Tuesday it's been great. To be honest, we've completely turned our mentality around. And that, to me, the way that he said it and and the expression that he had really tells me something happened on Tuesday, whether it was was just a face the music aspect and and some hard truths were said and, and, and occurred in that training. But Wednesday, Thursday, things just, it seemed like the light bulb went on or the whatever happened, it was a completely different tone, a different vibe. And you had Johnny Nelson and Nico Giochini who, who were more smiling than you would expect after two straight losses. But he, knowing that backstory of something happened on Tuesday, it was tough ever since it was great. And you can see that that there is a desire, a hunger from a guy like Nico Giochini talking about for a striker, there's no place in the mind for doubt. And being able to take the confidence that he remembers having and knowing exactly how, how much you have to believe in yourself and that you have the ability to do the things you need to because you did it for five games, getting back to that. All of these things seems like a very positive progression that's occurred since the Seattle game and that Tuesday practice. Love that. Yeah. And this was a big test for exactly that. Listening to that last game, uh, the the announcements were great. It was at Max Bredos and I forgot who else loved them. And they were talking about how you just have to be so dedicated in this pressing system Uh, Because one guy lets down a little bit and it just falls apart. It's easy to pass through and the whole thing's on. So um, it's true mentally, too, I think, um, that it's important to take two losses and that we bounce back. And I loved hearing I loved hearing what you just said. And I loved hearing what you said about um, what Carnell's quote there saying it's not broken. And Mm -hmm. none of us as fans feel like it's broken. But at the same time, you know, we can't have people. Uh, feeling bad for themselves or not trying as hard because we lost a couple of games against some of the best defending teams in the league. So um, that's really nice to hear. Um, we're going to move on to another uh, another segment here. You're listening to Flyover Footy on the big 550 KTRS. Um, every once in a while, um, something weird. We've been very lucky with the St. Louis City, culturally wonderful club so far. They've been really killing it and nothing bad to say, but uh, every once in a while in a league, a player will do something silly. And so we had that with Dante Van Zier with uh, New York Red Bulls facing the Quakes. Um, you've probably heard the news about it, and we don't want to talk much about it right here. But um, I think we thought it was important to ask our club what they thought. You know, Bradley Carnell, you, you asked Bradley Carnell about what he thought about this situation. 
mm-hmm. and whether or not the club has um, any. You know, go ahead if you you're going to do a better job saying what you said. Yeah. Well, first, set the stage for just a moment in case you aren't aware. Last week, New York Red Bulls played the San Jose Earthquakes, and in the second half, a moment occurred where designated player Dante Van Zier from the New York Red Bulls made a remark that was called a racist remark by Jeremy Abobasi, the uh, San Jose Earthquake striker. And essentially all of the earthquake players surrounded Van Zier. The scuffle occurred. There was a 19-minute delay in the game. 21 minutes of stoppage were added to the half. And it was just it was a, a it was a team clearing event. Uh, Van Zier did not get subbed off by his coach. Uh, uh, Struber, the, the head coach of Red Bulls, did not sub him off. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion this week about uh, what kind of penalty or what kind of uh, really action should be taken. And this has to go back to MLS because of the collective bargaining agreement. MLS has a disciplinary committee that is responsible for this. The club themselves are, are not allowed to suspend the player. It has to go back to the league for a review. And today it was announced that uh, Van Zier has been suspended for just six games for what Abobasi classified as a racist remark. Now, the remark was not made to an individual player. It wasn't a, a directed comment from what we understand. It was more a generalized use of that in some context to the earthquakes. And I asked Carnell today in the press conference about what what his team, what St. Louis City has um, culturally or institutionally that is designed to prevent this kind of uh, remark from being said by a player. Because the other comment is there's been cultural things said. Is it a thing where the player doesn't know where the line is or what's appropriate? Um, in, in America, it's obvious. In most uh, Western countries, it's pretty obvious. But there is there is a, a barrier to language, obviously, when you have these kinds of players. And so what has any certain club done? And I asked Carnell what our club has done or what their thoughts are on how you can train or what processes you have to ensure that your players know where the line is. Here were his, here was his reply to that. Yeah, I mean, our process at the club is, uh, you know, we, we don't condone any form of racism, right? And uh, yeah, what happened at Red Bulls, I think we're too far away um, in the Midwest here to know exactly, you know, what went on behind closed doors or what went on on that 20 minutes of chaos. Like there's no, we cannot, you know, I think we're the, the furthest ones to have any opinions or judgment. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we'll best leave it at that because, yeah, while well, we condone it and, uh, you know, would we have other restrictions uh, to make sure that doesn't happen? Possibly sure. Yeah. Possibly and, sure. You know, like that's the yep. part where I was like, oh, OK, so maybe there are no um, training programs in place. Maybe there's no cultural get to know the United States in place. But. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making very clear where they stand on the topic. And um, it sounds like, from what I've heard around the league, no MLS team has anything in place. Correct. So I'm not calling out St. Louis City right now. Very true. But I think as as media, even though we're independent media, we're not the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I think it's really important to ask our club these questions. And I hope they consider possibly implementing some kind of cultural to prepare you for what it's like in the United States. And Go ahead, Matt. I know you have something to say, and then I'll. Well, that that's a good that's a good note that we're not the Post Dispatch, we're not a, a news a TV channel, anything like that. But that also I think gives us a little bit of flexibility in what we can ask and type of types of things because we're fans. You know, they call what we do fan media, and as that, I want the best for my club. We want the best for our club. We don't want to have this kind of a black eye and a stain on the culture and on the identity of our club. So. 
whether it's just asking the questions, making sure that that the thought process is out there, even if it's it's something that's implicit on their side, just knowing that we care enough to not want to see that happen, not want to see any of our players fall victim or be an aggressor in that kind of a scenario. We just want to keep that keep that nonsense outside of our club. And so just by asking if there's any kind of process, maybe St. Louis City has an opportunity to be the first club to institute some kind of a process that's explicit and part of the onboarding of a new international player or a new player in general to to just make it overt, not not a we will say we say this, it, it's uh, it's known but really reinforce and hammer it down, whatever they want to make that look like, I think there's an opportunity there to lead the way in MLS. And we know the kind of culture that St. Louis City, Bradley Carnell, Lutz Fennenstiel have instilled. We know it's there. It's positive. It is uh, something to strive for. So it could be a, a great opportunity so that we don't have to be in this scenario. Agree. And, you know, I'll just close out that by saying, you know, how nice would it be too to have the first female-led MLS club do something like that to make sure that we're culturally on the right path, um, even if it's over the top, according to many other MLS clubs. We'll talk about this more. So we, we record this on a Thursday night, and we, we stream it on many different places, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Um, and so you can interact with us in that regard. Um, but we do our radio show. We take a break, and then we do what we call the wind down. We're going to hit this hard in the wind down. Yeah. We've, we've already talked a little longer than I think we intended, but we'll move on. We just wanted to make sure we mentioned that to everybody in St. Louis, something to look out, look out for in the future um, in how our club operates and how the league operates. Yeah. Um, but let's get focused back here, Matt. We have a, a game to talk about, um, but first we need to talk about a lot of news from the week. The biggest one being yeah. Jubilo Blome is going to be out five to six weeks with a groin injury. We saw him go down in, against Seattle and we just got him back, just got him back from a sickness. And um, now we're, we're, we're back here again, aren't we? You hate it for a guy who has just shown so much promise and you know, the talent is there. The opportunity is, is in front of him. He's coming over. You saw the fan base from South Africa follow him in mass over here. I mean, the eyes of the, that country are on him in St. Louis and you want to, you want him to succeed. You want him to have every opportunity to be on the field and perform and show what he's capable of. So from the, the delay in getting here initially to COVID that forced him to not be able to go represent his country. That's devastating mentally and physically. And then to pick up this groin injury on what everybody is saying, Seattle as well, one of the worst turf fields in the league now because it's it's old and it's just, it was causing Tim Parker ankle issues last week even. And for Blome to go down twice, essentially, went down, tried to tried to play it off and wasn't able to continue, it's, it's devastating for him. And knowing that he's out for five to six weeks with this injury, we we've played without him. We've had to plug holes in our, our defensive end. I don't think we have a player with his skill set that can truly replace him and what he could bring, but we're going to have to try and we're going to have to find a consistent answer for that. And we're not saying it's turf per se, but if it is turf, Matt is, how would you have handled that? Would was it maybe give uh foreign players who aren't used to that uh, less time? Or if it's someone who's injury prone, maybe less time just for turf or, or do you just kind of, well, play in like you're going to play everywhere. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. We have a turf field that I think they can get some familiarity with. And so not just for set pieces or crosses or things like that. But, you know, that's there to test it out on in mm -hmm. limited fashion. I do think that for players who are in their prime fit, 
don't have any pre-existing injuries or, or leg issues to worry about. There really shouldn't be any restrictions. The, they've, they've played. They're used to it. These are American players, and, and those who aren't um, have some familiarity with playing on turf. It's just one of those things you have to deal with. But with Blome in particular, I don't know if he has a history of any kind of a groin-type issue. He came on as a sub in the second half. He was only able to play uh, a dozen or so minutes before he was hurt. So even if you're talking about limiting his minutes for one reason or another, they essentially did that. And so you're you're not looking at a scenario where he was 75 minutes in and he was trying to tough it out and had been getting bruised up by the turf this entire time. That's It's just one of those unfortunate things. Yeah, and Joseph Iliff is is with us in the chat, and he asked, how does the starting 11 look different with the injury to Blome? And there was a quote about that today as well, wasn't there? Yeah, I, I asked... Um, I asked a couple things to Carnell today about the. I, I first asked him if there was going to be any kind of um, injury replacement, and his answer to that is they still have four players for two positions at the moment. It's Miguel Perez, Indy Vasilev, and Edward Leuven with Akil Watts, who's contributed key minutes. So he he reinforced that they're ha- they have four players for those two. Uh, central midfield positions, no need or panic to get something or go down to city two. He kind of shot that idea down and in doing so it, it was a little illuminating because we know that we've seen a formation of Leuven, Vasilev and Perez on the field at the same time. I don't know how much we're going to be seeing that knowing that the depth to those three is a Watts and, and you would, you would lose an ability to bring on another central midfielder. That'll be interesting to watch. So if you're talking about a starting ele- a starting 11 perspective, I think you're going to see a lot of what we've been seeing. Because of Blohm's uh, having been out for COVID or not starting because he was late to preseason. You saw Andy Vasilev get that start at the very beginning of the season for that fact. I think you're likely to see combinations of Leuven and Vasilev or Leuven and Perez to start a match. And it's, it's a lot of what we've seen already. So if you're talking about what will be different – not a lot because Blome unfortunately hasn't been there to be a consistent starter in the first place. But if you're talking about how this will go into formations, I think it reinforces the two central midfielder formation is likely to stick around for at least a few more months. Yeah, no more five three two or three five two or whatever for yeah. the near future here. Um, I loved what he said about Azil Jackson and Akil Watts. I'm just reading what you put in here, so thank you, Matt. This isn't my work here, uh, but he said we don't even have to improvise. I love yeah. that. That's really cool. I mean, that's confidence. Azil Jackson isn't even intended to be in that position. There have been some good stories from Tom Timmerman on that, uh, but good thing they did it in preseason because now he might be needed, right? And Indiana Vasilev too. So Azil Jackson is the obvious. So we, we he was he was vaunted from coming I know, in. From, like we weren't even sure that Vasilev was going to play at the eight, and now look like that's his main role for us, right? Yeah, <laughs> he he is the central midfielder on, on our team. Yeah, Lu- Leuven, you could call him an eight or a ten, but it, Vasilev is going to be playing a six or an eight yeah. and playing it pretty regularly. He's he's done pretty well. He doesn't have as many of the tendencies that Blome does in that position. And, and the the abilities that he does in tight spaces. But Vasilev has done a remarkable job in that position, especially given that it's a brand new position for him that he moved to because Blome wasn't available. Mm-hmm. Do you want to... There are a couple more uh, player updates on injuries that you, you have here. Yes. So we found out today that aside from uh, Joachim Nilsson and Blome, uh, John Bell is going to be out for this weekend. He picked up a stomach bug this week. So he's not available. 
And Rasmus Alm, we understand, is doing well. And Carnell was quoted at saying he's a potential starter this weekend. So it's it's continuing that progression from last week of we'll we'll give him another 48. Last week he said we'll give him another 48 hours and we'll see how he's doing. He didn't make the game day roster, wasn't able to go. This week he's unprompted saying he's a potential starter this weekend. Yeah. Uh, you know, our offense has been a little rough the last couple of games. Um, it could be the other team's defense, but it could also be a little bit of Rasmus Alm missing. So it could be nice to see him return to the 11 in some form or fashion and poor John Bell. My gosh, this man is going to think about 2023 for the rest of his life. He's been injured more than he's been healthy. I feel like, yeah, injured, uh, not available for selection. Something, something's going on, whether it's depth or an injury, it just seems unfortunate for him right now. Yeah. I hope the second half goes better for him. Uh, you're listening to flyover footy. We are a St. Louis soccer podcast. We're halfway through the show today. And uh, you're also listening to us on the Big 550 KTRS. We appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, We are now going to start. Oh, there are a couple other press conference quotes. Was I going to skip over some things here, Matt? Anything you wanted to say before we go on to the Seattle game? A funny story at the press conference. Um, We all know who Zlatan Ibrahimovic is. That that goes without (laughs) saying. Nico Giochini had a fantastic quote today. Um, Finding out that he idolizes Zlatan Ibrahimovic and and he touted his book I am Zlatan saying that it's his mentality what he went through his whole career in life have been an example for Nico Giochini and he, he did note a lot of people don't like his attitude but says after reading the book it's much deserved you can see a lot of those the, that hunger and drive come out of Nico and it was also as we pivot to Cincinnati telling that the two people that were made available to media this week's press conference were Johnny Nelson, former FC Cincinnati player and Nico Joachini. That tells me right there, a little tease for our, our predictions on the lineup later that Joachini is probably going to feature this weekend if they made him available for the press conference. Very cool. I have not read that book because you know, Zlatan's mentality is famous, infamous, you might say. Oh yeah. And, uh, I'm not a fan of it. Right. But reading his book might be helpful to, you know, I would say if you're, so I'm not a great fan of that either. It's just the, the flashing. But knowing that there's a player on our team who has that, yeah. I'm a fan of that aspect of it, <laughs> even though I might not be a fan of the antics or the the personality itself. Knowing that what has led to him being so successful is wanting to be emulated by a player on our team who has that a, a high quality talent. That's pretty cool. I can't decide whether boosting my confidence level is a good or a bad thing. So I'm, I'm <laughs> going to take that very lightly there. Uh, but let's talk about the Cincinnati game. The you got you got to start it off on a really good topic here, Matt. The history between the two clubs. I'm going to start with my experience, which is the USL experience, because yep. what St. Louis did by starting an MLS Next Pro with a bunch of ringers who we wanted to get ready for the MLS season. Um, Cincinnati's the team that I think of doing that the most in, um, the USL back in the Mm. USL championship days. And so, you know, like GB fall is like, again, an infamous player for them known for, uh, biting a guy and, um, all kinds of antics. The Cincy and St. Louis fans have, have, you know, had a rivalry for sure. And, um, in some ways since he won that rivalry with regular season games, in some ways, St. Louis got him back in the end in the Open Cup. It just depends on how you want to look at it. Um, the one people remember. <laughs> but Matt, you dug up a really cool article, and you also talked to the Cincy Soccer Talk guys, who also has been around as long as yeah. STL Soccer Report, Flyover Footy. So um, we know those guys really well, so that's really cool. You got to do that if you want to talk about some more of the history that I, you know, there's a lot more than what I just talked about. 
Yeah, Cincinnati Soccer Talk uh, had an article that they put out detailing the origins of the St. Louis and Cincinnati soccer rivalry, soccer matchup. And it dates back to 1906, where they put in their article, St. Louis was more or less one of the soccer capitals of the U.S. at the time. And with Cincinnati being a more popular hotbed growing, there were there were a, there a friendly organized where Cincinnati chose some players from their area to travel to St. Louis. And it was kind of like an all-star matchup between the cities where a team from Cincinnati traveled, played. Nobody knows the result of the match from 1906. It's <laughs> said to be lost in time, which is kind of hilarious. But there was also a return to St. Louis that occurred in 1910. So the Cincinnati Nationals, who were champions of a Cincinnati league, would travel to St. Louis and renew that rivalry, taking on uh, the St. Teresa's of the St. Louis Soccer League in a couple matches. There was no record of the first match, and aside from the fact that Cincinnati lost, so they, they glossed over that, uh, but the second match was pretty newsworthy, uh, no weather restrictions. There was all kinds of um, goal scoring, and so it said, despite the, the snow, a crowd of 3,000 St. Louisans turned out to see their hometown squad dismantle the Nationals by a score of 10 to 1. Mm, ouch. Yep. So that's awesome. It's it's over a hundred year rivalry matchup, uh, just history of matches occurring between the two cities. And we know of the history with baseball, like St. Louis and Cincinnati have a very storied, very noteworthy history in baseball. But knowing that there is this history dating back to 1906, 1910, the St. Louis FC years, the Open Cup magic from Sam Fink. And now we get to renew the rivalry in a more consistent way. They're in a different conference. We may not have a consistent home and away every single year, but this is a team that has a lot of promise for some really heated matchups, both from the fan base and from what's going to happen on the pitch. And it's just a really cool opportunity to revisit that. Yeah. And speaking of revisiting and having Cincy and St. Louis ties, we have a St. Louis in coaching Cincinnati. I think probably everybody knows at this point, but Pat Noonan, who did the classic St. Louis, what was it, DeSmet to Indiana situation. Yep. So the, the quintessential pipeline, you yeah. might say. <laughs> um, but, you know, the story of Cincinnati going from three-time wooden spoon winner to what they've become now under Pat Noonan and the, the GM for uh, Philadelphia Union who, who moved to Cincinnati as well. I forgot his name. Chris Albright. Thank you very much. How did I know you were going to know that? <laughs> um, cool story, too. Um, and so, you know, we're not... I think we were all looking forward to having a, a crappy Cincinnati to play, but um, the the story has changed, hasn't it? We're we're a little bit. This is a good team now. Yeah, and that's it's always fun to play the, the consensus ter- worst team in the league, but it's even it's even more fun to play a good team and prove yourself and to know that the quality of competition's there. And we're catching Cincinnati at if not their peak, then as they're rising quickly to the peak. And having last year with uh, with Noonan and Albright taking the reins at the beginning of the year. And you saw last year in 22, they molded this team to their own. They brought in a host of different players. They, they drew the best out of the ones that they had. So you're talking about bringing in guys like um, Obi Nwoboto. Uh, Matt Miaska came in towards the end of the year in the allocation order. There's a lot of talent that they've brought to this team and they've organized it in a way that I don't think was intended by Pat Noonan. I think when Pat Noonan, in talking to some of the Cincy Soccer Talk guys, Pat Noonan intended to institute kind of the Philadelphia Union 442 diamond. So he tried to give that a shot 
and it just wasn't what the team was made to do. So he pivoted. He went with a 3-5-2, and the players that he was able to bring really have shown that there's no reason to to move away from it. So uh, he has yet to switch back after succeeding in that 3-5-2, and he's brought in not just Miaska to anchor that defense, but the wingbacks on their team, and we'll talk about the, some of the some of the player names here in a minute, but their wingbacks have really created a lot of uh, transition moments from their back line to their strikers, and their two strikers, at least up until now, Brenner and Brandon Vasquez, have just been the one of the best one-two punches in the entire league. So Noonan has created quite a name for himself in Cincinnati. His first head coaching job has gone off to the, the best start he could have imagined, I think, and turned a laughing stock of a team into one of the powerhouses of the league. In in such a short amount of time, you know, the the article that you found, Matt, is so good on backheeled talking about how they kind of turned things around and the way that he was able to take players that were not being productive um, and then bring in a couple small pieces like underestimated guys for sure. Uh, to solidify the team just to get through the season. And they won uh, way more than they ever had in, in their history, in their short MLS history at that point. And so it's really amazing to see that. And to see, you know, I think we saw uh, the Philadelphia Union, um, the cost of players that came in, and we looked yeah. at, like, the their market values compared to the rest of MLS and how well they're doing based on such a low value. Um, and so we can relate to that in St. Louis. It's a very similar situation to us. What else we can relate to is um, with Cincy, these players that are underestimated, that are put in a system that works for them and seeing them be successful. I feel like a lot of the players we brought in were not doing well with their teams and now are doing, you know, Joe Keeney and Vasilev not being used that regularly. And now they're like stalwarts for us and yep. doing well in a system that was created to work for them and they were brought in to work for as well. So I don't know. I love those two storylines. I love that, that since he has Pat Noonan doing what they did as well. Um, but now that I've spoken so long about that, Matt, I do want to let you know, we need to kind of speed through this. So let's, well, I'm going to let you pick the next thing to talk about. We got about 10 minutes. We're going to hit the stats. We're going to let everybody know where things are coming into this. So we mentioned Cincinnati is one of the best teams in the league. They're first place in the East, 5-0-2. They're 1-0-2 on the road, so they have no losses on the road. Uh, they have no losses in general. They've kept five clean sheets in seven matches. They're only one of two undefeated teams left along with LAFC. So this is a consistent quality team. Cincinnati has no goals scored outside the 18-yard box this year and only one headed goal. So the way that they're scoring are getting Brandon Vasquez and Brenner some opportunities. But the thing is, they're not scoring very often. So they they are one of the least goal-scoring teams in the entire league, and they, their XG matches that. So they have, I think, nine goals overall this year, and their, their XG is about nine. Uh, St. Louis, on the other hand, is sitting second in the West, we know about the two uh, goalless matches in the in the last two games, but we're still five two and zero. We have five wins, two losses, two and one at home, and in the last three matches for Cincinnati, they're one and zero at home, one and zero at home, one and zero at on the on the road. So they're very very um, low scoring games, and that's one thing that is is noteworthy in the power rankings this week. MLS Soccer says they're the best defensive team in the Eastern Conference right now. They're just waiting on their attack to start turning these one-goal wins into three- and four-goal wins. Now, the flip side of that is their attack is going to look rather different mm -hmm. against St. Louis than what they probably have in mind. So let's, let's switch really quick to some injuries and some player news that Cincinnati has going on because 
their ideal line of Brenner, Vasquez, Lucho Acosta, Nuobodo, those kinds of players isn't what we're going to see. Uh, last week, Lucho Acosta suffered a shoulder collarbone injury and is out one to three weeks when he was uh, taken down hard on a, on a penalty. He scored the PK, but he, he's now out for a few weeks. So we won't have Lucho Acosta there, number 10, or one of their, they, they tend to move him up a little bit into a 4-3-3, or a, I'm sorry, a 3-4-4, 3-4-3. And he won't be there for that at all. So he's not going to be there. The other designated player they have, um, Obi Nwobodo, missed last week. He was training separate from the team this week and just returned back to full team training midweek. And talking to some some Cincy to- Soccer Talk guys, when Noonan has players return from injury, he usually doesn't start them. He's likely to see, they're expecting him to not start. They're expecting Nwobodo to appear as a second half sub, maybe 15, 30 minutes of time. So that's big from them and the quotes on Wobodo on why he's so important. It's not his defending that was missed, but his quick decision-making and movement in types tight spaces. Mm. So that, that is going to be a big miss. And you can see a lot of uh, comparisons to Blome, Jabulu Blome mm. in, in what Nwobodo is able to offer at a very high level. Another injury for them is um, Yuya Akubo. He missed last week and he trained separate from the team on Tuesday. He was, uh, he was, not even a, a notion in their training earlier this year or this week. So it's going to be interesting if Kubo can join them. And then the big one is Brenner. Brenner left training early on Tuesday, missed training Wednesday and Thursday, but it was announced on Thursday that Brenner is being transferred to Serie A side Udinese for around $9 million in overall transfer fees, including a sell-on percentage. What this also means is that regardless of whatever knock Brenner might've picked up this week, there's an expectation that he's not playing this weekend, and there's an expectation that he may not play again until July to alleviate those injury concerns and ensure that that transfer can go smooth. Big loss for Cincinnati, but at the same time, they're going to use this, I think, as an opportunity to see what their offense can do without Brenner, knowing that they're probably going to have to do this without him going forward. Yeah, and, and the Brenner thing is is so interesting. We got really lucky with Brenner, especially not to kind of dance on on their grave in that way, but like the fact that um, he's been wanting to to transfer out for a while now, and the fact that it happened the weekend that we're seeing them, and the fact that it's it's very evident like he's not going to be playing this weekend against us. So um, that's pretty massive for us. But you know, at the same time, Cincinnati's been planning on it happening. Um, but you know, I loved what you said too, about, um, how their defense is, it's one of the best in the East. That's really interesting to me. And I'm not surprised based on what I saw with them against Philly, who's obviously we talked about how good they are. Um, and it's just really interesting to think about, you know, I, I kept looking at this three game stint here, uh, how we saw Minnesota and then we saw Seattle and now we're about to see Cincinnati. These are maybe the three most difficult defenses that we're going to face all year long based on statistics so far. And so um, I, I don't think that's an accident. You know, yes, we've been without all Yes. We tried the, the three, five, two or whatever, but I do think a lot of this has to do more, you know, nothing's broken again to bring that back more with the fact that we've seen really good defensive teams and we're just struggling to score goals against really good teams. Um, and they're also, uh, you know, in regards to the last two teams, um, teams that that play in a way that we knew was going to be difficult. Cincinnati, yes, their defense is very good, but this game could also be very open if if we attack each other up high, uh, like both teams tend to do. They do it differently, I think, than us. 
But I'm interested to see whether Cincinnati's defense is it going to affect us high, or um, are we going to, or are we going to have like a bit of an open game because both teams are really good in transition. So I'm really interested in watching those two things play out and whether Cincinnati's defense is is going to have the same effect as the last two games, basically. Yeah, my understanding is that they they will probably uh, go into a, a mid block. So they're not going to be the, the low block that we saw against Minnesota. Um, they're likely to attack us here in the midfield. And the way that their shape looks, they they push their left side forward, not unlike St. Louis a lot, where you're going to see um, Alvaro Barreal, number 31. He's a U-22 initiative, their left wing back. And the, the news from him, from Cincy Soccer Talk, is he's a winger turn wing back. Um, the Argentine is dazzled at times on the left and is key to attacking quickly in transition. He will likely be the free kick taker without a cost in the lineup and has been dangerous. Um, Barreal is pacey, talented on the dribble, and can serve in a good cross when needed. They're expecting him to cut inside more without Lucho, but that just means he could get slightly more space without a dedicated six trying to hold off Acosta. Uh, Cincinnati's going to need a spark, and we're likely to see it from Barreal out on the left-hand side. And what they'll do is as that that shape kind of shifts over, you see their, their right wing back drop back a little bit, you see a lot more defensive-mindedness on their right side. So guys like Jake Nerwinski, uh, Indiana Vasilev, Edward Leuven on that, our right-hand side, mm-hmm. are going to be pretty key to stopping that kind of an attack from moving forward. Yeah, and luckily we're good at, you know, we go up against daily a high-pressing team in our training, right? So yeah. I think they'll be okay in that regard. But yeah, they look, that's what I was going to say is, you know, they don't press a lot, but they look for those, those opportunities yes. and those triggers, and they'll hit you hard. And I saw a lot of turnovers high. Um, you know, it happened early to Angulo for Cincinnati. But yep. um, and I was like, oh man, maybe Angulo is not that good. But then Cincinnati did it to Martinez, who's one of the better sixes in the league. So you know, like, gotta watch out for these teams. They, they know what they're doing. Well, and the other thing on their attack is Brandon Vasquez. There's going to be so much pressure on Brandon Vasquez to perform here. Mm-hmm. He he was one of the three players named to the U.S. national team game against Mexico from Cincinnati. It was Vasquez. Miazga and their keeper, um, Roman Celentano. So having having those three, knowing what they're going to, it's going to be it's going to be a lot for them to handle. And Vasquez, I'm told, doesn't have a great first touch, and so having a high defensive line is going to help to neutralize him. He's not great at holding up play, so there's an opportunity with Brenner out to neutralize Vasquez as kind of the remaining. Uh, prolific striker. And so that leads me to where we think their lineup is going to be. So knowing that they're kind of without two or three potentially of their highest uh, caliber players, what kind of lineup are we getting? And it's pretty obvious they're going to run with a three, five, two from what, from what Cincy fans and, and media are saying that three, five, two is probably going to look like Yerson Mosquera, Matt Miaska and Haguland in the back with their mids of Bariano, uh, uh, Oh, I'm brain farting on his name. Oh, Junior Moreno. Uh, <laughs> Junior Moreno, Angulo, Pinto, and Arias on, on the right side. And their front two is going to be Sergio Santos and Brandon Vasquez. That's the overwhelming thought of who they're going to roll out. And it it's going to be a little more possession-based than St. Louis, but they have a less than 50% possession throughout the year so far. Mm-hmm. They've shown an ability to handle the ball at times against Philadelphia. They had around 60 65%. So St. Louis is going to be key to play their style, force the ball into Cincinnati's hands. And to me, some of the keys of the game are St. Louis just needs a goal early. 
we we have we've had two game drought. Cincinnati has five clean sheets. You want a singular way to change the narrative and change the the tone of this game and get the confidence shifting. It seems obvious to say, but more games, more so this game than anything else, just because of what's occurred before. Getting that early goal is going to be incredibly important. Cincinnati hasn't played from behind since March 18th against the Chicago Fire when they went down three to one and they were able to come back to tie that game. Hmm. In addition to that, Phil, I think we really need to create more chances in the attacking third. It seems like an obvious thing to say again. You heard it from Joe Akini. You heard it from Berkey last week. These guys need to be putting the ball in the box and creating those high volume and high percentage chances. We need to win aerial duels. Both of these teams are successful with long balls from their keepers and their back line, and we need to be physical on them to push them off the ball and win some of these some of these duels and and create some of these second chances. We need to protect the ball, especially in the midfield. We need to own that midfield and creating some plays through it. Edward Leuven is going to be so key to this game because he disappeared in portions of the Seattle match. We were we were having to leverage our wing backs a whole lot. Leuven needs to have himself a game in addition to at least one of our two strikers. And we need to be willing to draw fouls to create set pieces. That's Cincinnati's not good at defending the set piece. We are rather prolific at the set piece. Leuven or Vasilev are very strong with the ball, and we need to use that to an opportunity. If we score a goal off of a set piece, I think we're in really, really good shape. And then Johnny Nelson needs to really be effective in sending crosses. Nick Hogland is one of the better defenders at crosses on their right side. Mm -hmm. And so Nelson's success in sending the ball in is going to be so key. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I don't even necessarily I agree with you that, like, we need to figure out the final third. Uh, but I do think this is going to be, a, you know, a punch you in the face kind of a game. You yep. know, I've, I've noticed that um, a lot of teams seem to be using injury stoppages, like even fake injuries or just like decent fouls. Take every chance you get to go down, especially against St. Louis and that Philadelphia FCC game. Man, that was it was an ugly game, and I'm, I'm expecting exactly that. Both teams are willing to fight, and both teams have that blue-collar thought to them as well. And you know, one thing that I am worried about is Cincinnati's counter-press. I feel like they have mm-hmm. a really vicious counter-press, uh, more than, than some of the other teams that we've played against. And I feel like that was a lot of their chances were created through that. And that's kind of our bread and butter, too. So I do think, you know, I think my key to this will be clean sheet. I think clean sheet is what I, even more than playing through the middle or whatever, I do think a clean sheet is going to be important for this one because they are down a few guys. So that means like all the more reason for us to come out of this with a clean sheet. And however, we got to get that one goal. I love your shout for, um, you know, a set piece goal. That'd be really nice. But I'd also just really love to see Klaus. Um, get on the board again for some confidence. Joe Keeney, yep. see Leuven, you know, feed the ball in and someone score a goal. That Nelson uh, cross in is also an amazing shot. I love that, Matt. Um, anything you want to talk about before we do our final prediction here? Oh, actually, we should just do predictions if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's run right through it. So I, I'm expecting our lineup to go back to a 4-4-2. So I mentioned I think Joe Keeney is going to play. If for nothing else, then he's been still in form. Uh, our, our midfield, we can see that two-man central midfield. I think we're going to get back to seeing Nelson, Parker, Hebert, Nerwinski, Leuven, Vasilev. And if Alm is healthy, I think we see Stroud or Ostrock on the left side and then Alm on the right. Hmm. And Klaus and Joe Keeney up top. If I had to pick one, I'll just guess Stroud. But that 4-4-2, and then I think we're going to, I think we're going to pull out a one-nothing win. I think it's going to be gritty, hard fought. I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth, a lot of fight to not possess the ball. 
but a lot of <laughs> trying to create chances quickly by St. Louis. Yeah, maybe a lot of turnovers in, in the midfield and even in, you know, yeah, I agree. You know, Matt, I'm not even going to give my prediction because literally, and I had a feeling this was going to happen based on your keys to the game. I was going to say exactly what you said. <laughs> Alm and everything. Everything you just said, 1-0, that's exactly my prediction. So Let's will it into existence. Yeah, I love it. Let's make it happen. You know, and you know, I won't say 10 to 1 even though the precedent has been set. So I mean, anything <laughs> less than 10 to 1 is just going to be a disappointment, Yeah, right? you're right. You got you to harken back to 100 plus years ago. Exactly. 10 or 1 or nothing, boys. All right, let's go. Uh, this is Flyover Footy. Thanks all for listening. You're listening to us on the Big 550 KTRS. We'll be talking to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Enjoy the game. Welcome back, everybody. It's the wind down on Flyover Footy. Uh, there's the there's the beer noise. You like how I timed that? <laughs> well done. Just, I guess I need to wait next time. We can do the pour into the mic. What is that called when you do the... the oh, the, whatever sound it makes? Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Soothing sound recordings. I don't even have a glass. I just have a can. Well, slumming it. Well done, slum sir. It. <laughs> slumming it with Urban Chestnut. There are worse ways to slum it. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, what do you want to start on? I, I, I kind of cut you off a lot in the in the radio version, so I think you should choose first. I mean, first. yeah, let's stick with uh, let's stick with Cincinnati. So if folks are listening to the pod, they might be getting bored at some point. So I want to get a little bit more about Cincinnati done. Um, so we mentioned a lot of their a lot of their players and formations and what we expect them to roll out because of their injuries and the, the prospective transfer. So some of these players and why they're important to either be missed or who's coming in, Lucho Acosta in particular is one of the linchpins to their offense. When mm-hmm. you think of a number 10, a playmaking guy who is key to facilitating everything for a Brenner or a Vasquez, that's that's Lucho Acosta. He leads the team in accurate forward zone passes. He leads the team in duels. He led the team in assists last year by a ton. He had 19 assists last year. The next closest was nine. This is the guy who is their playmaker. So missing him due to the shoulder injury is going to be huge. Having having a what they're expecting to be Angulo step in for it. Bradley Carnell mentioned today that Angulo is like their playmaking for him. He talked up Marco Angulo as the 10. Like they they are aware of these injuries. And, and Carnell mentioned both uh, Brenner and Acosta as not likely to play. And so they know who they're going to go up against. But Marco Angulo is no slouch. He's no stranger to the Cincinnati lineup. But having him in that role as their primary is going to be uh, definitely a different look and a bit of a miss for them. But also, I mentioned Brandon Vasquez, who this year is second on the team in shots, third in shots on target, and last year he was tied for first in goals with 18, along with Brenner. You can see the consistency that both of those bring last year being tied for first with 18 goals each. That's a that's a high-octane offense when you have two, two players scoring 18 goals. Mm-hmm. Vasquez, though, I keep hearing that he's more of, he, he's a different style from Brenner, and he's more of... I don't know, like kind of a Nico Joachini type person where he plays off of um, the other forwards very, very well. And his opportunities with the national team, I think, 
it's not exactly like a false nine like Jesus Ferreira would be, but him as a sole striker, uh, he's not going to get the opportunity as a sole striker for Cincinnati, but I'll be interested to see if he does get that opportunity for the national team. And then having having Brenner being out just puts Sergio Santos back in there. Santos has seen time in that 10 position. He's seen time in a little bit of a, the depth in the midfield. And he's Santos himself, though, to his credit, is tied for the team leading goals this year with two. So it's not a high-octane offense by any means, but Junior Moreno and Sergio Santos do lead their team in goals. And Junior Moreno himself being one of their stalwarts in the midfield and so that's, I mean, that's their offense, right? That they don't have, they, they don't have a prolific scoring machine this year yet for various reasons. And they definitely don't have one coming in. So they're going to have to find who's going to be their goal scorers. Are they going to be able to rely on Vasquez? Will Sergio Santos be able to find goal again? Are they going to rely on their midfield to push up? It, it's going to be a, an interesting question on how St. Louis defends this very specific group of players. Yeah, it, a few of those players. So Santos, I'm trying to look up what his, here we go, all seasons. So he was with Philadelphia Union last year. And yeah. um, let's see here, MLS. Okay, yeah. So eight goals with Union, one one assist. Um, I think he was off to a really fast start, and I think he slumped. But, you know, again, like Philly Union finding a guy that was producing from them right from the get-go. Um, pardon me, that's 11 goals, three assists. No, that's wrong. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he did well for them. Since he liked him, they brought him over uh, to play for them. So I think he's the Brenner replacement. And I just want to say about Vasquez is yep. he's not quite a Ricardo Pepe. Um, he's almost more like a sergeant, somewhere between the two. But he is big, and he does drive a goal like Ricardo Pepe does. He makes smart striker runs uh, but he does come back and and play a lot like you were kind of saying there so it it'll be interesting to see how he and santos play off each other they're gonna have to get used to it because it sounds like they're gonna be playing together more often now that brenner's leaving yeah and the the other big guy that we touched on i don't think we did enough justice to obi noboto their other designated player currently leading the team in interceptions with 15. But when he was signed last year, he was, like I said, one of those two players that Noonan brought on Noboto and Miaska, who changed the, the face of the team so drastically and gave them such a, a consistency in their spine. Like when Lutz and Bradley built our team, mm -hmm. they talked about the spine and how you started with Berkey, you built it out through the the center back so you have tim parker and ideally you would have had yoki nilsen but now kyle hebert and then you built it up through edward leuven on up to klaus they didn't i mean obviously you know how cincinnati started with their three wooden spoons but that was the first thing that pat noonan did is to correct the spine of their team and to bring nobodo in last may from um gostepe in the turkish super league and to bring in Miaska back into MLS in, I think he came in August through uh, the allocation order, that those were world-class moves that is causing the exact uh, success that, that we knew. Last year before Cincinnati brought in Miaska in particular, they were averaging 1.54 XG allowed. Since they brought in Miaska and had Noboto, they dropped it down to 1.12 in their eight matches together. 
and Alec Khan they brought in too because yeah. their goalkeepers in that article, the the one you sent, the back-killed yep. one, their goalkeepers were letting up the most in the league. So that's a massive problem. Alec Khan, who played with St. Louis for a year, um, I think just one year, and then went to Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, it has been everywhere, really. But anyway, he solidified them as well in that, in that first season, it sounds like. And Nobodo, the, the quote there, the, the information that I have from – Cincy Soccer Talk is Noboto's range and ball winning ability have changed how FC Cincinnati can play. He's one of the most prolific pressers in MLS, ranking in the 98th percentile among MLS midfielders in pressures per mm-hmm. 90 minutes this year. This was for last year. And he's also in the 98th percentile or higher in tackles and ball recoveries per 90. Wow. This it, it, And he's the player who has been injured. He was out last week. And if, if guesses and speculation is correct based on Noonan's handling of injuries, he'll feature in the second half. It's definitely going to be something to watch if Nuboto makes the starting 11. That'll be a completely different midfield that we have to handle with him in. But if he's not able to go and only getting 15, 30 minutes, that's another big plus for St. Louis. Very cool. Nigerian deep-lying ball winner, it looks like. Very cool to watch for him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the uh, Nick Hagland is a local boy, I think. So yeah. that's a cool Cincy story. You know, he played with them in the USL as well, I think. So uh, that's I just wanted to mention that because you mentioned him earlier as well. Where should we go next, Matt? Anything else? The St. Louis characteristics, perhaps? That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. Let's let's look at that. So there was an interesting stat, an interesting uh, group of, of info that I found about the strengths and weaknesses of both teams. Cincinnati and St. Louis. And it kind of looked at every single player looking at their history, their tendencies, their stats. And when you group them together, it puts together strengths and weaknesses of the entire club, including what the style of play is from looking at the stats. So let's take take a look at St. Louis's first. And we'll because we all know how St. Louis plays. We, we've seen the eye test. Um, this will give you a hint of whether this can be trusted or not, I think. So a, the strengths of St. Louis, very strong strength in coming back from losing positions, very strong in creating scoring chances, very strong in creating long shot opportunities, strong in finishing scoring chances, strong in counterattacks, strong in attacking set pieces, strong in stealing the ball from the opposition, strong in protecting the lead, strong in aerial duels, and weak in defending counterattacks weak in defending against through ball attacks, Hmm. very weak in keeping possession of the ball and very weak in avoiding individual errors. Dead on, right? (laughs) What are some, I was going to say, what are some things to you that jumps out on that? The counterattack thing is pretty giant, right? Strong on attacking set pieces has been true statistically this year. Not And very weak in keeping possession of the ball. That's pretty obvious. Um, the aerial duels, don't call it a weakness. No, no, no. (laughs) true, true. It's one of those, um, my, my biggest weaknesses that I care too much type of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Well done. The aerial duel stands out to me though, because I don't think St. Louis gets enough credit for how well they've done in, in duels and, um, really fighting for those second chances, 50, 50 balls. St. Louis was, they, they outworked Seattle in duels, which is surprising. We handled, we did give them too many opportunities, but if you're looking at volume, we, we beat them in those duels. Yeah. And so we, we are good. 
at going after loose balls. We're I was surprised good. to see that. And we were close with Minnesota. I can't remember, but one yeah. edged out the other, but what we're not great at though, are first touches, I think when we do that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time, especially in our attacking third, I notice that we might win possession or force a turnover, but then it's very like, like my, my blood pressure just starts rising when I see the, it's almost like a tick attack, but it's not because it seems like they're just fighting for their lives to keep possession of the ball. And it doesn't look smooth. Oftentimes it just, and I think it's more in the attacking third, it speaks to just the, the freedom that they have where you've got players running all over the damn place and they're, they're making these underlapping runs. They're making all kinds of runs down the line and setting each other up. But it but it goes to that that keeping possession in that attacking third. We don't have very many touches, but they're very kind of frantic, fren- frenetic when I they're agree. trying to do that. Uh, you're, I, I've been wanting to talk about this too, and it's really cool that you brought a stat up to kind of talk about that because, um, yeah, I would, and in fact, I think the people I hate to be this guy, but the people who seem to have a bad first touch who are really good at other things. So I don't want to make it sound like I don't like them as players, but like Joe Keeney steals the ball so much up high. It's one of my favorite mm-hmm. things about him. Probably my second favorite thing about him. Like he's so good at pressing. Um, but my goodness, that first touch after he gets the ball <laughs> often goes to the other team. And uh, Vasilev's first touch can, can be rough. Um, and I love these guys, but like, man, against Seattle and again, like against Cincy, if their counter press is as crazy as it as it has been that I've been seeing watching them this year, that if that first touch is bad, we're gonna lose the ball again, yeah. just like we did against Seattle. It felt like so. The, yeah, go yeah, ahead. They're, they're not gonna give us any leeway on that. They're they're yeah. this, they're not gonna provide space to where Vasilev's first touch um, is. He needs a three yard box around him to recover. Type of a thing. And the other, the last thing I want to say too is is that part of that is our style too. It, it can't, it's not just the players. So I don't want to be too harsh on those guys, but it is also our style where, you know, with Scott Gallagher back in the day, it was like, when in doubt, pass it back. You know, like every time it was like, shoot me at the end of the game. If it was one zero and we lost and we were still passing it back. Like it's so nice that we watch an exciting team and, and we, they play the way they do, but when in doubt, they send it forward. They take a chance, you know, and sometimes that pays off. Um, if the game's nice and open, I think it's more likely to pay off. And so that's what I was getting at earlier. I didn't yeah. express myself perfectly, but against Cincinnati, if the game is open, I think we're going to get away with more offensively. And so I'm interested to see whether that's true because now that, you know, yes, they're good defensively. Is it, are we going to lose these chances? Are we going to take some chances and they're just going to get cut out every time? Or are we going to take a chance and it's going to pay off with a goal? I think against Cincy, we're going to be more likely to see that than Seattle and Minnesota. And you wonder if we have that kind of space, where's the space going to come? Uh, not necessarily from when we have the ball, but mm. as we're, we're defending certain things, um, they, I think the expectation is they're going to leverage their wingbacks a whole lot to move the ball up the field, mm-hmm. trying to play it into, um, in, into Aguila or into Sergio Santos. And how are our fullbacks really going to and where are they going to make that point of contact yeah. on those wingbacks? Are they going to allow them to to press up uh, on there? And, and Nerwinski is going to end up falling back towards our back line. Where's that where's that really point of contact going to be in um, in those those duels? And I think there's an opportunity to keep it in the midfield a whole lot. 
keeping that high line from Parker and Hebert so that Vasquez doesn't have an opportunity to to really get in deep behind them. And now that you say that, you know, of course we're not going to play a three-back system against a team that wants to play wide like that. So yeah. this is perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely go four in the back. Um, but at the same time, yeah, we got to watch what our fullbacks do. But also, if we can force either their, you know, if, if their outside center back gets overloaded because we have wingers pushing up and, and we start pinning back their, their wing backs defensively, like we could really do well, especially if we're pressing high and those wing backs never get a chance to get forward. That's a good way to, you know, defend with the ball in a way. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see Alm or Stroud on the right in that regard. And we actually see Ostrak play wide with his left foot on the left, just because Mm -hmm. if they can stay high, they'll be able to pin those wing backs back perhaps. And Alm is going to be key too, because I I alluded to it in how they, they like to shift their formation from the like move high on their left, similar to what we do often with Nelson. But it was, it was very clearly communicated to me that Yerson and Barial, they're, uh, left center back and their left wing back love to advance up the field. And so playing balls in behind them is what I'm told is would be our best bet. So attacking that right-hand side where they like to push up. So getting in behind them there, both are super quick in foot races though. So we're not very likely to get advantage on the dribble. And then if you flip that, think the opposite of advancing, think the opposite of super quick feet. Um, hmm. That's what we'll get on their right side. So guys like Haglin and Arias on their right center back and right wing back, they stay deep. They stay back. And mm-hmm. so they're going to sit back to prevent balls in behind or over the top. So you wonder just how much of our attack is going to go through our left side where a guy like Stroud or Ostrock or uh, Klaus tends to find a lot of space hmm. and and how much we're going to try to leverage a Leuven or Joe Keene or an Alm in this game. Yeah, it almost sounds like it might be a good game for a big switch on our side, you know, sending the ball from Leuven left to right to Stroud or, or even Nerwinski on the overlap, something like yep. that. Yeah, Nerwinski has a, a pretty good opportunity. Um, I, and, and knowing what he likes to do, playing the ball inside a little bit more when he's in a fullback role, uh, I'm excited to see the link-up play between Nerwinski, Vasilev, Leuven, mm-hmm. and, and Joe Akini in particular. Yeah. I think we'll be moving fast with them, and if it doesn't work... Oh, someone said this in another game. It was so cool to see them call it out in real time. I forgot which game it was, but they were like, okay, they try to hit the other team on the right quick, and then if that doesn't work, they recycle it left. They always recycle it left to Leuven, yeah. right? Because Leuven's always kind of in that 8-10 role, and Ostrak's kind of around him, and then we see that interchange in possession. So that's something to watch for. That I didn't catch that. The commentators did, and I'm just uh, recycling it. It was a really good one. I, I So we talked about like keys to the game and some of the players for them to watch out for. As we wrap up looking at the St. Louis characteristics, I can't say enough about Edward Leuven's importance to this game. Mm-hmm. Even after not disappearing against Seattle, but even after um, not having as much success against Seattle, he still leads our team in overall passing. Uh, 239 successful passes, 316 passing attempts. He leads in passing in the attacking half with 180 almost twice as many as the next highest in Jake Nerwinski with 95. So the amount of passes that he has is skewing towards that attacking half, telling me that he really is directing our offense in a lot of different ways. And he leads the team with 207 successful short passes. 
mm-hmm. look at guys like Jake Nerwinski and John, Johnny Nelson who are making those long, trying to connect, and even Tim Parker trying to connect long with their passes. Edward Leuven's taking the ball and trying to make quick things happen with it and move the ball up the field when making those things happen. And to be fair, if someone's got the ball, they're looking for Leuven first, <laughs> as they should be. So, Yeah, so so knowing the guys like uh, Junior Moreno, how is he going to attack Leuven? How is Matt Miaska going to come out and, and face him? Those are kind of the battles that you want to see happen because I think Leuven himself can go toe-to-toe with either of them or really any of their top stars, Nobodo if he plays. That's gonna. Those are gonna be fun battles to watch in the midfield. Yeah. Even, so, yeah. yeah. So St. Louis City style of play in this characteristics chart that I had uh, to finish them off. We take a lot of shots. We our style of play is dependent on long balls. We attempt crosses often. We control the game in the opposition's half, and we attack through the middle, leading back directly to uh, Edward Lubin there. The cross. There were a million crosses against Minnesota. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. So they I and they mentioned that in the that. in the press conference today. It was kind of kind of cheeky how Joe Akini and Nelson were um, ribbing each other a little bit. And I think Nelson asked something about, or or it was a question. I think um, uh, Kristen Carver might have asked it, but it was, "What have you learned about your teammates recently?" <laughs> and Joe Akini said straight up, "I've learned that Johnny Nelson likes crossing the ball, and mm-hmm. so when he has it, I know." And it was uh, which game was it? Was it Portland? One of those games where Nelson had it, and it would have been a Nelson assist to Joe Akini, except for it, it tipped off of a player. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of thing that Joe Akini was was alluding to, the fact that he knows Nelson loves to cross it, and he knows whenever Nelson gets into a, a dangerous position, he just has to kind of be there and know where he's going to put the ball because he's going to put the ball somewhere deep, as opposed to a Jake Nerwinski who likes to look inside and, and on yeah. the ground a lot more. So that was, those are really cool little mm-hmm. comments that speak to this overall style of play. So... We kind of see that this bears fruit for St. Louis in my eyes in a lot of ways. And so looking at FC Cincinnati's characteristics, if you don't mind jumping right into that one. Oh, yeah, go for it. So their strengths, according to this, are creating scoring chances, aerial duels, and stealing the ball from the opposition. Sound familiar? <laughs> those are three strengths of St. Louis's. Yeah. So these are these are similar teams in those regards. And it plays a lot to uh, the, the counter press, not creating a lot of space, when you steal those balls, you're, you're obviously going right up against them. But their weaknesses are defending set pieces and avoiding fouling in dangerous areas. Hmm. This, is a, this is a reason that I put one of my keys to the game is we need to be successful in drawing those fouls and creating those dangerous set piece opportunities. If Cincinnati is weak in A, defending set pieces and fouling in dangerous areas, we need to be aggressive in putting ourselves in situations where we're forcing them to foul us in and around the box to create those kind of set piece opportunities. Like it. That's cool and to then, see. Those. Where did you say you got that optic opta or this one was from who scored? Okay, that's good. And stuff. then the yeah the FC Cincinnati style of play to wrap it up is they attack through the middle. They have short passes. They attempt through balls often. And they have a consistent first 11, which is ironic because of what we've been talking about, that they won't have that in this game. But attacking ball, attacking through balls, um, attacking through the middle and the short passes, those are those are a lot of the keys that we've said it before multiple times. Losing Lucho Acosta is going to be huge with regards to those of keys to their style of play. 
I love these. Like it almost feels like AI, doesn't it? Because it's like it it comes up with really interesting facts based only on whatever information it has. Yeah. So it's only what six games now that that it's able to kind of talk like have statistics for so it's like yeah. i see exactly why you're saying these things and yes they're probably true but not all of them but it's interesting like attack through the middle and through balls often which the through balls is what we're bad at defending that's that'll be interesting to see without a i'm not sure it will but we'll see we'll see but you you like to see that uh when a team is has certain strengths if the flow of the game doesn't facilitate being successful in those you can see why a, a, a bad result would occur mm-hmm. like with st louis we we are very we're very strong in creating scoring chances we're very strong in uh finishing creating long shot opportunities uh attacking set pieces those things didn't happen against seattle and so you take away all of those strengths that we have it's no wonder that we don't have bite to our attack uh, Byron Tim, who we know well, said that was the San Jose game, I think, is what he's talking about, is when uh, <sighs> Nelson sent that in. So, well done, Matt. Way to get it wrong. <laughs> I was at that game. It's a was rare really moment. Stand- yeah. We're, well, you know, we're seven games in. Uh, I think at this point we're going to start confusing oh, matches yeah. that occurred. If, <laughs> if it's something that's, uh, yeah, something like that. I, I vividly remember the play. I just don't remember seeing it live maybe i'm thinking about watching it on replay or something i see that was exactly i didn't think i saw it live either but i guess we did and then we replay i was thinking exactly the same thing i had i had a dozen family members in at that game that was the most stressful game i think i'll ever have tim this is this is you getting under matt's skin you did it he's got me on (laughs) he's got me on tilt I love it. Uh, oh, I, I love but Tim, I also Tim love Hall. like we spend enough time together and do the same things weekly that uh, that we had exactly the same thought there. That was cute. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it okay if we talk a little bit about um, a little more about the racism yeah, problem? Let's, and let's then pivot. If we yeah, have let's time, we'll do something else. But if not, we'll just end it. I think we covered a pretty good amount on Cincinnati. So I think everybody's, if you're listening to this, you've got information overload on, on Cincy. So I'm good to pivot. Yeah, thanks wholly, solely to Matt. So thank you, Matt, for doing so much research, man. I mean, if you guys saw this, these notes are just so good, so incredible. So, um, but yeah, what was what was the main thought to you? You know, I think I went a little over, I went a little bit too strong, which I have a tendency to do on Twitter, saying that you know why wasn't there an independent investigation about this? Because then MLS could wash their hands of the decision. Um, and this independent panel who doesn't work for MLS, doesn't have any MLS people in that panel, could decide, you know, what was the best idea. It would be, you know, see through in, in that way. Like they, everyone would know what was happening. They could even publish it. It'd be really nice if they could. I know that doesn't really happen in 2023. Um, but, you know, I think that'd be really smart. The other side of that is like, the single entity thing, you know, like there's, it's unfortunate. And and maybe this means all the more reason they should do it, even if they don't need to, um, that yeah, MLS and Red Bull and even arguably every other club has an interest in just covering this up and making it not a big deal. Only six games because it's just better for the league for this guy to just get back in there and play. So, you know, all those thoughts, like I just wish, um, you know, Eric Friedlander made a good point. Like the guy confessed, there's nothing to investigate. He's right. Like there's nothing to investigate, but still 
that six-game decision, everyone's pointing oh. the finger right at MLS because MLS was the final say, and it's not much of a penalty for what, what happened in, in our opinion. Well, it's not just they're the final say, they're the only say. And it, you have to incorporate the single entity into it. I, I mentioned to you earlier in our group chat that I'm, I'm not sure how USL handles it because USL now has a collective bargaining agreement too. I don't either, but yeah. this is pretty clearly laid out in the CBA. So I, I looked it up because there was a your comment earlier about why um, why Red Bull didn't do anything. Like they're, they they didn't they, they just almost step back and absolve themselves from any um, decision or punishment making in this. And they, they said the league's conducting an investigation. It all sounds shady when they do that because they're they're placing blame on themselves to the naked eye because they're choosing not to – it almost appears they're choosing not to do anything and they're, they're letting a higher power take it when they could do something because they're the team that the player plays for, right? It's mm-hmm. Logic tells you that the Red Bulls can do something about this. But that's not how the CBA is, is laid out. It's – Section 20.2, Discipline for On-Field Conduct and Detrimental Off-Field Conduct of the CBA, pretty clearly says on-field misconduct, um, it it says discipline for on-field misconduct will ordinarily be considered and imposed by the MLS Disciplinary Committee acting as the commissioner's designee. Basically, the commissioner has the say, like for all disciplinary actions, and he, he delegates this to the disciplinary committee which is composed of five members, all but one shall be appointed by the commissioner, and at least two of the league appointees must be former MLS players. Hmm. Uh, For any changes to the membership, the MLS has to consult with the MLSPA prior to making those, but the other member shall be appointed by the MLSPA and be a former player, but not an active player or an MLSPA employee. So there's a lot of player feedback and decision making on this disciplinary committee but that's that's the rub right and and i don't think this goes to the marketing of the whole thing and how i think less is not more in this case you need to be as transparent as possible when you're dealing with the severity of these allegations and the severity of what we witnessed on the field hmm. if you watch that video it's you can you can make some assumptions about what was said knowing that it wasn't said directly to a player but to either generalized group or, I mean, you saw the players who were in the vicinity. It, it's not hard to use your imagination. And when you see that, when you see the reaction of all of the Quakes players, Jeremy Bobasi front and center, who's no stranger to this kind of thing. Also you, Red Bull players. Also Red Bull players. teammate. Yes. That was interesting. Yeah, we, well, that goes to, I mean, using your imagination of what you think he said. Yeah, right. And so all of that happened, 20 minutes of chaos – and two things. Um, Gerhard Struber does nothing. In fact, who's the keeper for, for Red Bulls? It's Cora Coronel. I didn't say it because I knew I, I forgot. I'm sorry. It, it looks like Colonel, but I, I don't. I can't remember. Anyway, he came over to, to Struber on the sideline, and you could see he was visibly upset. He wanted he wanted uh, he wanted him off the field. He wanted to have nothing to do with him. Struber mm-hmm. just. He, he waved him off. He literally waved him off and said, no, Van Zier's staying in the game. And, and not just that, but basically refusing to say anything after that other than MLS is conducting their investigation. The statements were released, uh, and, and Van Zier himself stepped away, almost as if <laughs> we're, letting the player, we're letting the player per, uh, have their own discipline. Like, it's up to him on what he wants to do. Like, you, you did a bad thing, now think about your actions. 
but all of this is going on where there are very clear rules about what process needs to unfold and who the decision makers are. Why wasn't any of that discussed? Why wasn't that the thing that, that they talked about? It's like, no, it, it's not the Red Bull's ability to do anything about this. There's a process defined, an agreement between the MLS and the MLSPA that we're following. And once the disciplinary committee makes their recommendation, that's that. It's not up to the Red Bulls, and it's been collectively bargained as such. Like, I'm using a lot of jargon that's not marketing friendly, but there are ways to communicate what's actually needing to occur versus more or less silence and uh, just lackadaisical statements that the, the parties put out. And that's not even getting to what ultimately happened, which is a six-game laughable suspension mm -hmm. when you're talking about a league that touts its, themselves as zero tolerance for anything to do with racism and abobasi very clearly said there were racist remarks said they're not, they the whole thing has been very hush hush about what was actually said i haven't seen a single outlet able to confirm what was actually said but everybody on the field seemed like they were on the same page with what abobasi said racist remarks when that occurs and you give a guy a six game suspension you're you're proving that your words of zero tolerance are hollow. I agree. You said a lot after this, and so <laughs> I, I I don't Sorry. want to lessen what you just said because I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I, I did, went on a rant. No, rightfully so. <laughs> That's why we're here, right? But Struber did say um, publicly. He said, knowing what I know now, I wish I'd subbed him immediately. He said I was going on information he's like it was confusing i wasn't sure what was exactly true and i think in the moment when you're a leader you know you think about someone point their finger and said he said something if he didn't and you bench him what does that say as a leader you know like you benched me and you didn't take my word you know yeah like you said vanzier kind of walked away as if like okay he like he knew so uh, maybe he's wrong but i i do have some sensitivity for struber like in that regard like i i understand why you didn't move and i'm glad he at least came out afterward and said i wish i had sat him immediately but yeah and you're to be fair you're definitely right that it's in it's it's a he said he said thing from that perspective in the moment so there is a lot of discovery and knowledge that occurred afterwards so if you're looking at this uh in hindsight it's different than looking at it at the moment but it still seems like there were so like, did Struber ask multiple people? Did he ask Van Zier? Like, I, I just don't know because Van Zier never seemed like he was yeah. denying <laughs> even on the field. Like yeah. if you look at that image of Cornell talking with Struber and saying, and looking like he wanted him out of the game, Van Zier wasn't like, Hey bro, I didn't do this mm -hmm. or, or it wasn't me. He was just kind of standing there. Like, Oh, was it bad what I just said? <laughs> yeah, and, and that was my—that's my take on it. He obviously, I'm just, I'm putting uh, emotions into his mouth, but I'm having a hard time finding this, and and I mess up names and things, and so I'm really scared I'm going to get the wrong guy. But I thought it was Wilfred Nancy, the coach for the crew, that talked about this, because um, he's a black coach. See, I'm pretty sure it's him, and he's from Europe. And he said um, he's actually really glad to be in MLS because he said in the United States, you take racism and you take um, hate speech very seriously. And he said mm. in Europe, it's just not like that. And I, I think that is, is kind of what you finished in the last 
comments you made there is where we should go next. And that's that, um, we gotta institute education for European players. It's in some ways it's not their fault in some, I mean, it's hard to excuse, but we are culturally in this regard ahead of Europe. Um, and it's probably because we've had to deal with it. Um, so strongly here. And I guess that's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? But the fact yeah. that these guys come over here and say something, it happens every year. Every fr- right. That's only the stuff we hear about. You know what I mean? So, like, like, these guys need an education. And even if you think they're a stand-up guy, really good person, you know, like, we love our St. Louis players, but they may unknowingly say something that is just going to set someone off. I don't think our players would, but you just never know. And I don't think you can take the chances. What I'm getting at education needs to happen for every player that enters every club in MLS. And in my opinion, in the world to be like, Mm -hmm. this is something you don't say. It's going to get you six games suspended or worse if they come to their senses and it's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us wins possibly. Yeah. We don't accept it. And if MLS only gives you six games, we're going to find the hell out of you. You like there needs to be punishments. And in my opinion, there needs to be punishments to clubs, too, to where I think there should be an independent analysis, whether you think it's necessary or not. I think you just do it because then you can wash your hands of any responsibility or any biased decision making and you charge the club and the club um, has to pay that. And then they get mad at their player because they lost money and then there's going to be a push to kind of make sure that this isn't a problem in the future, not just because it's morally right, but money talks, doesn't it? And I don't know why this isn't collectively bargained as such. So if, if all of the, if, if all of the punishment and the decision-making is at the discretion of what the CBA says, why isn't there more harsh language for all the parties you just mentioned for, Mm -hmm. for players, minimum types of, of sentences or, for teams in monetary, like take some game away, do something, you know, I don't know what the amount or specifics are, but there has to be something. And if your player leadership negotiating for the protection of your players, why isn't there more strong language? And that seems like it would be something that would be such a positive to tout, right? You're always looking for wins when you're in CBA negotiations and we're not going to see another CBA for a long time. This current one goes until 2028. But why isn't that a key centerpiece in some conversations as buying it, it buys you goodwill in in the media, but it also protects your players from these scenarios because it sends a, a clear message and it will help it it would help incentivize teams to develop some of those programs or or trainings for your players as just a requirement in signing international players. But, and it's not necessarily, it's not just international players. Like, Mm -hmm. let's be clear. We, we talk about them because of cultural differences and like, to your point, the way America has been, has, has kept this conversation front and center consistently for so long and incorporated it into sports. But it's, it's a, it's a player issue across the board and it needs to be treated as such. And so whether you're talking about mandated club programs or, encouraging clubs to do it, incentivizing them to do it some way. This just seems like a no brainer at this point. Like we don't think of it until it happens, but once something like this happens, you look back and like I, you were asking all those questions and I was like, why, yeah, why didn't New York do something? Why couldn't they? Mm -hmm. And in finding the answer is a little shocking that it's so 
less than what it should be. And then to know that there aren't really teams or programs that exist, there aren't teams with programs that, that happen to onboard players and go through this kind of sensitivity training, yeah. essentially. Yeah. That's shocking. And so that's going all the way back to Carnell's comments. That's why you can't really put blame on City, just like you can't put blame on any other team yet. But I do really, I, I believe in the comments I said during our first portion of, wouldn't it be so nice to have our team be at the forefront of this? Mm -hmm. Continuing the talk of diversity, inclusion, equity, all of these things that are touted as centerpieces to the culture that we have. And for us to be the overt first team in the league to make this a mandated portion of joining St. Louis city sends a message loud and clear. That's well said. Uh, last thing I'll say is that the one thing that the USL has is the black players Alliance. I think they might've gone through a name change, but, um, yes, the, the CBA was partially, um, part of the reason it became so important was because like, the, these racial problems and even, um, LGBT issues have arisen throughout uh, multiple seasons in the USL and um, the Black Players Alliance rose up before the CBA was signed and when they started talking about the CBA the, the Players Alliance the USL Players Alliance um, Players Association started talking to them he was on the board anyway Brandon Miller I think is one of them and um, anyway it just became this natural progression of bringing the Black Players Alliance into the USL Players Association and they were a vital part of building that first USL historic USL CBA and yeah. that's important and I, I think MLS needs it I think that's really clear because Matt I think you made a really good point that like are we who do we do we really expect a corporation like MLS or these billionaire owners to like think about um, black players first or LGBTQ plus players first? That's not on their brain. But the players yeah. association should. If they're yeah. going to protect players on their contracts and in their money and in free agency, then my God, they should cover them and protect them from um, hatred. Um, abuse. Abuse. Um, there's a word I'm looking for, but I'm not finding it. it you understand what I'm saying. So yeah. um, I think the CBA really, sh or the sorry, the, the MLS Players Association should take the lead and maybe should fix this problem in the future. Maybe put some, some rules forth um, in the next CBA, which is a ways off. Is that what you were yeah. saying? Yeah. And it's not, I don't think there's much that can be done to fix it from the PA's perspective, but there should be things negotiated into the CBA that incentivize systemic changes to occur. Yeah. And, and if you, if you, if you call out penalties to teams, if you call out harsh penalties to players, minimum sentences essentially for, mm. for suspensions type of a thing, or minimum monetary fines imposed if, a if if a racist or hatred a, a hateful comment is said doesn't even have to be just racist because there are other forms of bigotry and abuse that occur Thank you. and so you you want to capture all those things you want to protect as many uh, diverse player interests as possible but incentivizing teams and players to create the systemic change is what MLSPA should be doing to your point and it, it the CBA is the way to do it. It's just unfortunate that they're not going to get an opportunity for um, at five more years. <laughs>
Well, there, there are other there are other ways too that they they should be able to lobby for it. So the CBA is what it is. Lobbying in both public and private to require teams to have certain programs and certain uh, policies yeah. in place that that can and should still happen. It could be a voluntary thing that it doesn't have to be CBA. You know, right? We right. can all step up and become better people and make this place a better a better world so you know uh that'd be really nice to see uh despite all odds perhaps but that's yeah. something that would be cool um i apologize we're gonna end this one on on a bad note on a sad well note. let's let's give one there was a one question we had one question on twitter oh, okay. and i think that's a fun one to end it on as yeah. opposed to the down note. i agree so. with you thank you our, our our fantastic question asker Joe Flies X Wings asked <laughs> asked about some of our um, uh, possible moves this summer. So transitioning back to uh, some speculation about the team, real quick. With much of the core first team locked into longer contracts, do you foresee minimum minimal summer transfer departures? Mm. He says outside of maybe Perez. And do you think this is an under underestimated advantage over clubs currently reliant on talent that will likely depart prior to the playoffs? I don't think anyone's going to leave before the playoffs from our team. Do you? No, I totally agree with that. So I think the assumption being that the players we're developing now might be sold this summer. I think the opposite, actually. The The roster flexibility that we currently have uh, with Max Schneider on loan, we have two open roster slots. Also with Max Schneider on loan to City 2, we have two international roster slots. Mm-hmm. There's flexibility for us to bring in talent this summer, but I don't think I think it's too soon to talk about Miguel Perez leaving, uh, especially to Europe. He's 17 right now, and I think it's too soon to talk about. We were we were talking offline about what is Kyle Hebert's future look like mm-hmm. when we're talking about transfers out. I still think it's too early because we tried out a three center back look. When Joachim Nilsson comes back, that could be a way to get Hebert, yes. Nilsson, and Parker all together. I'm glad we touched on it. Right. So I, I, I want to see it on the flip side. I do think that it will be an advantage over some of the other clubs who may look to sell off some of their high end talent. Unfortunately, Atlanta is not in our conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we're not going to be, that's not going to be advantageous, but we don't have any players that are high enough value uh, that we can get what we will ultimately have for them. Like a high top dollar value this summer. We're talking about next January, next summer for guys that if they pan out this way, could be a Perez. It could be uh, a Tomas Ostrak. It could be Nico Joachini. I don't know. You know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of players who are still young enough where if they really progress over the next um, nine to 12 months could be in that conversation, but not this summer. Completely agree. Um, but like we said last week, I, I do think if Joachim Nilsson comes back, we're going to have a surplus of center backs. We just yep. saw Stewart posted that Isaiah Parker, who's been playing at North Texas uh, in the FC Dallas system, um, is being loaned to San Antonio FC. And that's really awesome to see for him, where clearly he's a little bit better than MLS Next Pro. They don't have a spot for him at FC Dallas. They're going to send him somewhere in the middle. Um, I, again, I think Josh Yarrow would be a really, if, if we got too many center backs and Yarrow has no minutes with either M, uh, MLS Next Pro or City 2, I mean, um, or the senior team, it'd be nice to see him go somewhere and get lots of minutes and, and improve himself. Absolutely. Otherwise, I'm with you, though. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Thanks, man. I'm glad we did that. <laughs> <laughs>
I feel better. <laughs> that was a fun one too. Always got to end the show on a high note, smiling. There's got to be something to finish it up with. That's right. So if you made it this far, thanks for listening. Um, I hope um, you're with us on when we get on our soapbox. I hope you, you agree with us. We'd love to hear any comments you might have about that or anything we talk about. We take questions. We answer them, especially in this second segment if, if we have time. And uh, we'd love to hear from you on all of that. So again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. See ya.